there's a day that will live in infamy for many, at least in the western part of the world. That day is called, often called 9-11. It's called 9-11 because on September 11th, 2001, hijackers who were associated with Al-Qaeda took control of two jets. They were two, two uh, Boeing 767 jetliners taking off from Boston Airport bound for Los Angeles. In the final moments of American Airlines Flight 11, it, it ended up flying over New York City and crashed at roughly 440 miles per hour. That's 710 kilometers an hour into the World Trade Center, the North Tower of the Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. Impacting there between the 93rd and the 99th floors of the World Trade Center. 17 minutes later, United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center between the 77th and 85th floors at 540 miles per hour or 870 kilometers an hour. In the process, the, uh, those jetliners severed numerous load-bearing columns on the, the perimeter of the tower, so they tell me, inflicted uh, some other structural damage to the building. The resulting explosions from those 767 jetliners ignited 10,000 U.S. gallons of jet fuel. By the way, that's 38,000 liters of jet fuel. The devastating result was, of course, you know, both towers collapsed. In total, they counted 2,750 people that were killed, including all 175 passengers and crew that were aboard those two airlines. Besides that, the the ones that often get ignored, there were also two other jets that crashed the same day. So they tell me one of them was intended for the White House. But one jet ended up crashing into a field because of the heroism of several of the passengers who had heard about the other two crashing into the World Trade Center. And so the, the, uh, some of the passengers, one of them being a Christian, ended up taking out the terrorists. So they crashed in a field in the state of Pennsylvania. The other jet was driven into the Pentagon killing many more people. It's interesting, you look at this picture, those of you who are firefighters, I threw that in for you. Uh, anyway, it's you'll see a big gap in the Pentagon office buildings there. It's interesting, there was a friend of ours who worked in that gap right there, but he retired shortly before that airline hit his office. He would have died if he was still working. There's another friend of mine, who is currently working at the Pentagon, but his boss sent him on an errand into a different part of the building. Therefore, his life was saved. There are Christians who work there, but it's interesting how God saved the, the, the only two Christians that I knew in that, that part of the building. So i got to ask the question as we think about this, what, if anything, did God have to do with 9-11? What does God have to do, if anything, with 
natural disasters. You know, we've had some flooding in parts of New Zealand. There's all kinds of things that happen to us and to our nation. Well, fortunately, the Bible is not unclear when it comes to what did God have to do with this stuff. So my friends, it's, it's essential for us to understand that the essence of biblical faith is basically just taking God at His word. Taking God at His word. It's, it's important that Christians not only say what God says about His relationship to these kinds of events, but to say it the same way God says it. That can be hard, especially when you're talking to an unbeliever. But the Bible presents an inspired model of God's mind. We can't know everything about this incomprehensible God, but what He does tell us is very helpful. We have an inspired model of, of the means and the actions of God. And so we can discern His hand and what He's doing in our world because of that. And apart from the revelation of the Bible, we have nothing really to help us, do we? How do we respond rightly to life except, you know, somebody doesn't believe the Bible? What do they hold on to? What do they believe in? Except their own flawed, subjective notions of what seems right to them, what makes sense to them. Praise God, though, that God hasn't left us without a witness. And so the subject that we're going to look at today is incredibly comforting, encouraging. For me, the, the, the most comforting of all the doctrines in the Bible, the one I keep coming back to, it's the subject of the divine providence, or God's providence, if you will. So what I want to attempt here is ask some questions and, and try to attempt to answer some of these questions. You know, what, like, what is providence, of course? And what role has God's providence played in human history? And then, what part does divine providence play in your own life? And so, hopefully, as you see all this, you'll, you'll see that the providence of God is not just some interesting theory out there somewhere. It's, it's not just some abstract theological concept that some people believe in. But it's actually very practical. And it can be radically life-changing. However, there comes a warning here, though, my friends. Here, here's the warning. When you study divine providence, it gonna, it's going to raise some hard questions. <laughs> You'll have these questions with other believers sometimes. You might even argue with yourself. And, and the reason is we're finite creatures. And we're trying to struggle to understand an incomprehensible God. I understand. <laughs> I've been saved, what, uh, approximately 40 years now? And I'm still trying to understand an incomprehensible God. That's fine. Even when you die and go to heaven, you're still going to be learning. And so we need to take heed, my friends. The measure of truth is not based on whether we can reconcile it with our limited logic or with our personal experience. But here's the thing. Is it rooted in the clear statements of Scripture? The fact is, things happen we simply just don't understand. 
Sometimes seemingly senseless things happen to, to us and, and in this world that, that might test your faith and might actually make you wonder whether anybody is in charge. You ever ask that? And if somebody is in charge, what is this, this being who is in charge? What is he up to? What is he doing? And so there's at least three explanations for all the events that happen in our lives. Number one is just pure chance. That's how some people, that's the conclusion that some people come to. It's, you know, they, they, they have all kinds of names for this. They might call it fate. It's fortune. It's coincidence. It's, it's an accident. It's luck. Or it's just a fluke. But it's all talking about pure chance. The second option that, or explanation for all the events that happen in our lives is, well, there's this cosmic contest going on out there. It's the ongoing struggle between God and Satan. Either may win on any given occasion. Sometimes Satan wins, sometimes God wins. That's what some people think. Well, there is a third option, third explanation for all the events that happen in your life, and that's divine control. It's the overruling will of an all-powerful being called God, who goes by many names and titles in the Bible. Of course, I believe in the third option out of those three, and I want to attempt to show you from Scripture who is in charge of your life, who is in charge of this world and all the events that take place in our world. And so who is in charge? That's a, a great question. And to answer the question, you need to understand that the doctrine of God's providence, while you want like like Trinity, you don't find it, you know, that word in the Bible, I don't think. But it is rooted in the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And as you see the word sovereignty, I put it on the screen here for you so you can see Right at the heart of the word sovereignty, you'll see a word that is in your Bible, and it's the word reign. It's reign. And I don't mean the stuff that falls out of the sky like we were blessed with this past week. I mean, I mean, R-E-I-G-N, reign. And that word's gonna help you to understand sovereignty, helps you to understand divine providence. So what is God's sovereignty? Well, the sovereignty of God refers to his undisputed authority, and because of that he is an undisputed rule over every aspect of his creation, from the micro to the macro, to the inanimate to the animate, all parts of his creation. God is the unrivaled king of his universe. Therefore, no being, whether that being is human or angelic, which would include Satan, is capable, therefore, of stopping God. There is no one, nothing capable of frustrating God's purposes. And so, my friends, this is vitally important because beliefs have consequences. Your beliefs have consequences for you and, and, and others. So, let me just lay it out for you, okay? If God doesn't rule supreme over all of His creation, if He is not sovereign then he's not God. Okay, that is not how he has chosen to reveal himself for who he is. And so, before we jump into some, some wonderful truths we'll look at from Scripture, let me just, i got to thank three men whom God has used in my life. God 
blesses the church with great teachers. Here's just three teachers whom God has used in my life to just kind of help me understand what, what is divine providence? What is the sovereignty of God? If you get a chance to read these, I encourage you to read, number one, Dr. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book uh, was very helpful to me. It continues to be Dr. Leighton Talbert's book, Not By Chance. And then we do have in our church library Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. The full title being Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Those are just some of the many helpful books. There's others. You can find some in the church library if you're interested in this subject. So let me just take a brief journey through Scripture looking for some answers to this very important question, who is in charge? Well, that's what I want to do today, answer the question, who is in charge? And so we're going to look at some truths that will answer that question. Number, the, the, number one, the first truth that I want to highlight for you is that God can do anything, with a qualifier though, that God can do anything that does not violate his own nature. All right? So in other words, God is self-limiting. He's self-limiting. Now we're going to use some uh, some scriptures to show this. Let's start in Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Of course, all these scriptures come in context. I will try to explain the context of the scriptures we look at a little bit, not in great depth, but a little bit. But first of all, look at this one scripture before we see the context. Genesis 18, verse 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So there's a question in verse 14. It's not a theoretical question that is posed off in some sterile surroundings of some, some academic lecture hall. But the context of this question here is very practical. Notice the question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the context starts up in really a well, read, read the entire chapter. Read about all the life that the Bible mentions about Abraham and Sarah. But let's just get a part of the picture here, starting in verse 10. Verse 10 says, The, the Lord said, I will surely return to you, that's to, to Abraham, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And that's the context of verse 14's question. Is anything too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so that's, a, that's the context of this question. 
And God wasn't just, God has, he's just, what has he done here, okay? What has he done? Well, he's just promised. By the way, for the seventh time, if you read the previous chapters, he's promised for the seventh time to Abraham that a a couple who notice is very old, beyond childbearing years, who are childless up to this point, will eventually conceive and bear a child of their own. Think about that, though. If enabling the dead womb of Sarah, who had never had a child of her own, and she's now 90 years old, her womb is dead, and God says she's now able to bear a child, if that is not too hard for the Lord, what other kinds of applications can we apply to our lives? Is anything too hard for the Lord in your life? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Often we say, though, that something is just too good to be true. You ever said that? Oh, no, no, it's too good to be true. Yeah, we might say that uh, when we're reading a contract or something, right? But the, the question is, is there any such category when God is in the discussion? Is anything too good when God is in the discussion? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that God can't do as long as it doesn't violate His nature? And the answer is no. God can do what He says He will do. He will do what He says He will do. And that ought to encourage us. Now, I'll I'll make a few applications toward the end here, but let's move on to the second truth. Think of these as little strings. and If you tie them all together, they'll turn themselves into a very powerful rope. But the second truth is that God makes everyone. Look at Exodus 4. Exodus chapter 4. Again, I'll, I'll show you the context of these statements, but look at the statement before we see the context. I want you to see here that God makes everyone. So Exodus 4, verse 11, context, God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. Verse 11 says, The Lord said to him, that's Moses, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Rhetorical question. Now remember, again, again, this passage, this verse has a context. What's the context? Well, if you back up to, we won't read all of chapters 3 and 4, but let me encourage you to read chapters 3 and 4 which is all about this, this dialogue between God and Moses. Moses makes excuses of why he can't obey God and go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. So Moses makes five excuses. God shoots all five excuses down by showing who he is. That's the solution to our excuses, by the way, is God's own person and character. And so we have the call of Moses to God's mission here in this context. Here's Moses. He's, he's out in the wilderness. He's watching sheep when God spoke to him from a burning bush. God told Moses to go to Egypt. A hard mission. 
I mean, th- this guy grew up as the prince of Egypt for the first 40 years of his life. He, he fled for his life. He went out in the wilderness, and he's been watching sheep for about 40 years now. And so immediately Moses begins, he, he began here to make excuses. He's asking God things like, well, who am I to do this? You know, what authority do I have to do this? And, uh, it, you know, what if they don't believe what I'm saying? And so, with that little background of the context here, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. So Moses makes an excuse here in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go... And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now don't miss the point here. One truth we can get from this is that God makes everyone. Now verse 11 may shock some people. We have, we have no difficulty accepting that God is the one who graciously gives birth to healthy babies. We give glory to God when a healthy baby comes into the world, but God goes a step further here. And God says, I am also the creator of unhealthy, so-called unhealthy children, those who are so supposedly not whole, the ones that we might label with handicapped. God says, I'm also the one who creates them. I don't know the answers of why God does that, I can't tell you all the reasons what God is thinking. He has reasons, and we need to trust. But my friends, notice the second truth. God makes everyone. He's made you the way you are. We all have handicaps of something, don't we? Right? Every one of us has a handicap in some way or another. We, we, we live under the curse of sin, and because of that, The entire creation is groaning under the curse of sin. So there is something that we could all... You've probably complained about it at some point in your life, right? But should we complain about it? Probably not. Because that thing that you grumble and complain about, your, your looks, your intelligence, your lack of or too much of or whatever it is, It has been given to you by God. God made you that way. And it's important that we trust Him and believe in Him and praise Him for what He is doing. The third truth we can see from Scripture is that God can do everything He says. God can do everything He says. The Scripture is here for you, Numbers 11. Numbers 11. Now, I like using these narrative portions of Scripture here because you can see what does the truth look like in real life. So look at this one. Numbers 11, verse 23. Verse 23. Now, in this context, the elders were appointed to help out Moses. Moses is being swamped with too much work. 
Look what the Bible says in Numbers eleven twenty three. The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So there's a question that God brings up to Moses. Is his hand shortened? So let me just take a moment to recreate the scene for you so you understand the context a little. The people in the wilderness whined about God's gracious provision of this manna. It was a food that God provided for them, dropped out of heaven. They were tired of it. <laughs> they complained about it. They craved meat. They were discontent. They began weeping and moaning for Moses to give them something other than this, apparently some type of a bread. And if you just continued to eat this manna day after day after day after day, you, you know, you'd probably complain too, just like the Israelites did. They wanted something meaty, something to sink their teeth into. And so look what the Bible says in verse 10. We'll just back up. Look at verse 10. Same chapter. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Now look at verse 13. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Moses says. For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. So that, that's what's going on. They want some meat. They're tired of the manna. Uh, now I want you to read what God said to Moses in verse 16. So here's how God responds, responds to the, uh, the complaining. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Wow. Moses couldn't believe what God said. And neither was he eager to make this announcement to the people. His, I mean, you think about it. Put, put yourself in Moses' sandals for a moment. His credibility is on the line. In fact, his sanity would probably be questioned here by the people of Israel. More importantly, God's credibility was on the line. And in fact, look what chapter 11, verse 21 says. As we read on in verse 21, it says, But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600 
thousand on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month, shall, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? So that's the context of that very important question. So basically, if you read between the lines, which you can't, you can kind of hear Moses thinking, right? Moses is thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Has, has God forgotten there's approximately 2 million mouths to feed? And, and uh, you know, there, there's no grocery stores or anything out here. There's, there's no fields of grain. We're in a desert. Where is all this meat going to come from? You've got to be kidding me. And, and God says it's going to happen for an entire month? How is this going to happen? We're in the wilderness. And I can just, I can just hear the wheels turning in Moses' head. So what is God's reply to Moses? That's verse 23. <laughs> of course, God knows what Moses is thinking. That's when he says, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Interesting idiom there in verse 23. Of course, God doesn't, God the Father doesn't have a hand. He's spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't have a hand. He's spirit. But the idiom referring to the Lord's hand being short has reference to one's word overarching his ability. Uh, is he, is God promising more than he can deliver? That's the idea. And so God is asking Moses, have I suddenly become impotent? Have I suddenly become no longer all-powerful? <laughs> so the question has a timeless application for you and for me. You say, why? why? Why does it have a timeless application? Because this question applies to every promise that God has ever said, that He has ever spoken. It applies to every one of His promises. Can you trust God with His promises? Can you? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 31. Here's what happens. Chapter 11, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Wow. <laughs> Did God answer? Did God speak? Did God do what He said He would do? In fact, God did exactly what He said He would do. Praise God for that. There's a fourth truth we can see from Scripture, that God rules all existence. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, we will see that God rules all existence. All right, Deuteronomy 32, we'll, again, we'll look at just one verse 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Verse 39 says, See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. God rules all existence. So think about that. It's an amazing statement. Over what realms or experience does God here claim absolute authority? What has He said? He said a lot of things. He's he's claiming authority over life, over death, over harm, and over your health. Now there is one word of caution that we need to make here, because... Like with a lot of things, people can be easily become off balance and, and go with these huge pendulum swings. The presence of negative circumstances in your life does not in and of itself necessarily indicate a loss of God's blessing in your life. It doesn't mean that you have lost your relationship with God or your fellowship with God just because you have a moment of... of lapse in your health or or something bad has happened to you. There's many examples to prove that in Scripture. Uh, Two of them being Joseph and Job. Why did bad things happen to Joseph? Why did bad things happen to Job? Because they were sinners? No, that's not the reason. (laughs) Scripture shows us that those aren't the reasons. In fact, God said that Job was blameless. Did bad things happen to Jesus? Yes. Did they happen because He was a sinner? No. Because He was sinless. Jesus suffered horribly, even though He was in the very center of God's will for His life. God ruled all the existence of those people, and you as well, my friends. So please don't don't, don't take the pendulum swing too far here. And because there might be some negative circumstances in your life, don't say it's because of sin or because you you somehow have this rift in your relationship with God. It might be, but it may not be. So be careful. Be careful when you ascribe the, the circumstances there and what's going on with them. The fifth truth I want you to see, my friends, is that God rules all circumstances. God rules all circumstances. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the context is God provided a child for Hannah. Hannah didn't have a child, wanted a child. God gave her a child and she praised God for the provision that God gave her. God gave her Samuel. I want you to see how she praises God here in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. So to what areas here does God... God's providence extend. There's quite a contrast there in those 
two verses that Hannah, as she's in, in her prayer and her praise to God, she recognizes God's providence, not just in her life, but in everyone's. So notice the thing she says. God controls poverty and wealth. So the size of your bank account was given to you by God. The possessions you have was given to you by God. The Bible also says the ability to make that wealth was given to you by God. But notice the Bible also says there, in verses 6 and 7, humiliation and exaltation. So your level of fame or lack of (laughs) was given to you by God. He's controlling all that. So if you have been humiliated, God's chosen to do that. If you're exalted, God chose to do that for you. It's all in His control because He is the one ruling all those circumstances that Hannah just mentions there. A sixth truth we can see from Psalm 103 is that God does all He pleases. I know there's some some overlap here, but bear with me. Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 19. Verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. God does all He pleases. Now, does this terminology we we see in verse 19 leave any room for exceptions? There's no exception clauses. There's no fine prints. There's no exceptions to God's rule. or There's no zones or, or areas or regions that are outside of God's dominion. So we can't, you know, we can't put a circle around North Korea or in Iran or any other part of the world and say, well, well, God reigns supreme over our country, but North Korea, no, he's, he's lost control of that. No, you, you can't do that. There are no borders in God's mind. Borders are non-existent in God's kingdom. Nothing is beyond the reach of His reign. So what response should that kind of a truth receive from you and from me? Look at verse 20. The very next verse. Look at verse 20. What are we to do? Bless the Lord, O you His angels. You mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So what is the proper response to this awesome truth that God does all He pleases and reigns supreme over all of His creation? Proper response is to bless the Lord. Seventh truth is that God's rule is unrivaled. God's rule is unrivaled. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. Verse 5. These are God's words. It's interesting that King Cyrus, a pagan king, is called God's instrument. He is God's servant, just as King Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. 
Look what God says in Isaiah 45, verse 5. These words are amazing. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let me help you think through the pendulum swings here, because we often assume that all good things come from God, right? We we love praising God. God is good because something good happened to me. Well, what about when something bad happens to you? Has God ceased to be good? (laughs) No. Some Christians like to assign, you know, the good things come from God, the bad things happen in my life. Well, that's because Satan did that to me. And that is a false and unbiblical assumption for many reasons. Number one, it it gives Satan far too much power and credit that he doesn't deserve. It attributes to Satan more power than he actually possesses. And so, contrary to popular misconceptions, Satan is not God's counterpart. Do you know who God's counterpart is? God doesn't have a counterpart. There is nobody even remotely close to him. The counterpart to Satan is the archangel Michael, because they're both created beings. And so Satan, just like Michael, is is an angel, both created beings. The reality is with God, though, nobody created God. There's nobody equal to God. There is no counterpart to God, and so you he has no equal. In fact, look what Isaiah 46 says about God. Chapter 46, look at verse 9. Verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So is anybody like God? (laughs) No way. In fact, look what he says in verse 11. God mentions, hey, I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's what God says about Himself. Do you believe it? Are you believing this? Even when the so-called bad things happen in your life? Well, let's look at one more truth. God's rule is unquestionable. Now, here's here's a book of the Bible that doesn't get often preached. Look at Amos chapter 3. So keep going in your Old Testament past past Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos... Chapter 3, verse 6. You can learn a lot about God from reading the minor prophets. Look what God says, Amos 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Rhetorical question. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer is no. No. So what is the understood answer here to the prophet's rhetorical question? Well, think of Amos as kind of like the master debater. He's been conditioning us for this correct answer. If you, if you read the whole book of Amos, you'll, you'll see what he's trying to do here, but we, we won't have time to read the whole book. But just back up to verse 1. See what Amos is doing here, so you can understand the answer is clearly no. Think of Amos as this master debater. So look at verse 1. It says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So notice the question here. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Notice the next question. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? And then verse 6. Again, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So the answer is no to all those questions. Now it's one thing for us to read these, these verses like this in a really abstract, meaningless way and, and, not a, and not take it to heart for us personally. It's quite another to make the application contemporary, to make it personal in your life. For example, put a name of the city. For example, verse 6, does disaster come to Hamilton unless the Lord has done it? Or wherever you live, okay? You put a name on that city. Does disaster come to that city unless the Lord has done it? Okay? Make it personal. And if you put a date on the disaster, like 9-11, does that change anything for you? It does for some people. Can you accept this truth? No, that doesn't mean that God inspired or He initiates every evil act. But what God does is He permits it. Why does He do that? Well, I, I, I'm not going to answer that question today. But I can tell you this, my friend, what your first duty is. Our first duty is when we see declarations like this, in verse 6, clearly in Scripture, our first duty is to bow down at this wall of mystery. And by bow down, I mean to, to, to believe, to trust, to worship how God has revealed Himself. And so if you bow down and you worship at this wall of mystery, then your spirit is going to be better able to, to grapple with the questions of Scripture. You may never get all the answers. Certainly not in this life. You might be like Job. Job, I believe, asked God 19 times why. He wanted to know why. God never answered his why questions. You may never get the answer of why 
that's not the important point. But what is important is that we just simply bow down and worship. So let me ask you, my friend, what, here's, here's another question to consider today. What areas of life does God's providence encompass? We've, we've looked at a lot of areas. And, and according to the verses that we've read and, and many, many more that we could look at, God's sovereign rule and providence extends over everything from the, the miraculous to the mundane. Some of the things that God has mentioned in Scripture are the humanly impossible births. Your health, handicaps, uh, the seemingly impossible provisions made by God. It includes life and death itself, uh, escapes from death. It includes the wounding and the healings and poverty and wealth, humiliation, honor, affliction, blessing, adversity, prosperity, the weather, darkness, light, calamity, peace, woe, your well-being, closed doors of opportunities, and and all the doings of every nation on planet Earth. Those are just some of the things we've seen today. So my friends, please recognize this is not just some abstract theology. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where you and I live. God's providence involves everything you do. So here's a question. How seriously and literally are we willing to take our Bibles? The collective weight and the the force of these passages are enormous and powerful. Their meaning is clear. Their claims are unmistakable. And so these passages should be causing you to do something. They should have an effect on your heart. You should be willing to bless the Lord. They should cause you to magnify God who is good and great. Is He big in your eyes? Is He big? Or have you made Him small? Let me just give you a quick overview of providence here. Just quickly go through these. Number one, God can do anything He says. Two, God would do everything He pleases. Three, God cannot be thwarted in what He purposes. Four, God will not be thwarted in what He pleases. And five, God rules providentially over the good and the bad. So let me ask you, my friends, if God is not in charge, then what are the alternatives? These are scary. Hold on a moment. I'll give you some alternatives. Just think about these. Any Star Wars fans here? Because that's the first alternative. If we can conclude that we are just at, uh, at the mercy of blind fate or some unreliable chance or some unpredictable luck, it's uh, the inexplicable coincidence or some impersonal force. You know, like Star Wars, right? Trust the force. What's that? It's very impersonal. By the way, I noticed in the the most recent Star Wars movie, they finally called it a religion. And I also read recently that in England, of all places, this shows you how much they've cast out God, the, the, the number five religion in England is the Jedi religion of Star Wars. Well, if you don't have God, what are you going to trust in? Who's in charge? If God's not in charge, 
Well, some people choose to believe in the force, whatever that is for them. And so the Bible has shown us that's clearly unbiblical, that God is in charge. But anyway, some people choose this as the alternative. The second option, see, if, if you opt out that God is not in control, and you wish to deny that God exercises sovereign control over the bad things that happen in your life, then you must conclude one of two options. Option number one, that some things just take God by surprise. God's sitting in heaven and He says, Oh no, I didn't see that happening. I didn't see that one coming. Whoops. Ooh, better get Michael onto that one. Or Gabriel, hey, go take care of that because I didn't see that one coming. So God's surprised. He's no longer all-knowing. Second, some things, you know, God's just unable to prevent. So if He's unable to prevent them, what does that make God? He's no longer all-powerful. And as we know, the Bible clearly states God is all-knowing and all-powerful at the same time. So if we rule out chance and God's control, then what are we left with? You're just left with a very disturbing option. Option number three is somebody else is in charge of the universe. Somebody else is in charge of your life. Do you like that option? Even if you're the one in charge of your own destiny, that's still a scary option. But for some people, they say, well, the devil's in charge, and as far as I'm concerned, that's my worst nightmare. That is mankind's worst nightmare. But then you get religious people that come up with all sorts of other ideas. Let me just give you one. Are we forced to choose between an all-knowing God who is not all-powerful or an all-powerful God who is not all-knowing? Oh, there's scholars that have debated this one. So there's, there's a question for you to ponder. I read several years ago about a, about a rabbi, Jewish rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner, wrote a popular book in his day called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The title ought to tell you there's something wrong here, because they're, according to Jesus, there are no good people. But anyway, that besides that theological point, notice what he says. Quote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he can't bring that about. It's too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. End quote. Wow. So my friends, that's what the conclusion that some people come to. The Bible teaches us that we do have it both ways. We have an all-powerful God and an all-knowing God. And so this is where... Sometimes your logic can get in the way, right? This is where we have to rein in our logic, rein in our reasoning, and submit our logic and reasoning to Scripture. Okay? Don't put it above the Scripture. Because you try doing that, put your logic over the Scripture, your reasoning above the Scripture, you're going to come up with all sorts of strange things like Rabbi Harold Kushner says here. So what is providence? Well, I like Dr. Wayne Grudem's definition. So let's just wrap this up by thinking about what this is. 
Dr. Wayne Grudem defined it this way, quote, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. End quote. Love that definition. Hopefully, in the weeks to come, you'll, you'll understand how that works out a little bit more. I intend to elaborate on that. But what effect does God desire His providence to have on you? Particularly, what effect should it have on your attitudes and your reaction to circumstances that happen in your life? See, we all react in some way, but how are we going to react? Well, there's at least two ways, two options. I'll put them on the screen here for you. Some people... Their reaction is presumption or laziness. Some despair or become irresponsible because, because, I mean, God is sovereign. He reigns supreme over all of His creation. So some people just kind of give up, don't do anything. He's in charge. So what option number two is the proper one, which we'll see from Scripture is it's this, my friends. It is submission, faith, encouragement, confidence, and joy. All those things should be happening in your life at the same time as a result of God's providence in your life. So the pages that we've just quickly surveyed in Scripture here are intended for your encouragement. They're an exhortation for you to trust in a God who has the authority, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, and who is good. Now the focus of the verses that we've looked at is, is, is only just one side of the issue, really. Which is God's sovereign rule over all of His creation. But Scripture consistently counterbalances divine sovereignty with human responsibility. God is sovereign, but you are responsible. And so, it's important that you don't ignore either of them. Some people go to the extremes. They ignore God's sovereignty. Some people go over here, ignore human responsibility. Neither one is biblical and right. Ignore either emphasis for the other. It's unbiblical and can be very dangerous, in fact. The two are not mutually exclusive. They are mysterious. I can't fully explain them. In other words, they're both true. They both work together, even though we can't fully understand how that is true. And so I like the way Jerry Bridges put it in his book, Trusting God, as he's trying to think through divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jerry Bridges said this, quote, We must be careful not to use God's sovereignty as an excuse to shirk the duties that He has commanded in the Scriptures. Our duty is found in the revealed will of God in the Scriptures. Our trust must be in the sovereign will of God. End quote. So my friend, there's the balance for you. Don't, don't fall prey to either one of the, the off balances. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us about the right balance as you approach this very important doctrine 
The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the word of this law. I've underlined do all. Right? You have a responsibility. Just because God reigns supreme over all of His creation doesn't mean that you can sit back and presume and be lazy and, and fall to despair or irresponsibility. That would be wrong. That would be sinful. That would be dangerous. Don't do that, my friends. The proper response is for you to submit, for your faith to be in Him and in Him alone, to be encouraged by this glorious truth that God is sovereign and His providence works in all things. But in that, we can be confident. We can have great joy even when life hurts. So-called bad things happen. God hasn't lost control. So my friends, may God help you and me to be balanced in this area. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that we can trust You because You are always good and always great. You never cease to be those things. That is Your very character and You are an unchanging God. But we also recognize You're an incomprehensible God. So as we bump up against the wall of mystery, may we submit. And may we bow down and worship. This is just hard for us to understand. We, I don't think we can fully understand it. May we be okay with that. And may we trust You as we see Your incomprehensibility. May we have great confidence in, in this truth, in who You are and how You've revealed Yourself. May we trust, even when we can't see and understand everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.